From the moment we're born and lock eyes with our parents, we are inspiring others. By showing up as a vessel of service, we not only help others, we help ourselves. Welcome to SOS Stories of Service, hosted by Teresa Carpenter, hear from ordinary people from all walks of life who have transformed their communities by performing extraordinary work. Well, hello, everybody, and happy Friday, and welcome to the 92nd episode of Stories of Service, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work, and I'm the host of Stories of Service, Teresa Carpenter, and today we have another amazing guest. We always have amazing guests on the show, but we have Mr. Scott Mann. Scott, how are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm so blessed and, and glad to have this opportunity to talk to you. You're the first person that I've been able to have the conversation that I've been wanting to have about Afghanistan, about moral injury. Um, we're going to get into mental health, just so many things. But first off, I'm just going to give uh, my audience for who is not familiar with your story, just the brief background. And for those who are listening uh, through the audio version of the podcast, it always helps to have this little intro here. So Scott Mann, he wears many hats and uh, he really shows us what stepping up and making an impact looks like. He shares his inspiring story on numerous stages and the stories of other warriors, uh, primarily right now through his play, but through his leadership company, uh, many, many media engagements, including tier one national media engagements. He's been doing quite a few of those lately uh, through his book and even advocacy uh, most recently, I think this past spring in Congress. Um, and it's just amazing to see somebody who's such a change agent and who really personifies uh, what this show is really all about, which is people who are not afraid to speak up and speak out. So Lieutenant Colonel retired Scott Mann is a former U.S. Army Green Beret with tours all over the world, including Colombia, Iraq, and multiple tours in Afghanistan. He is a warrior storyteller um, and the founder of Rooftop Leadership, where he shares the rapport building skills he learned in special forces to help today's leaders make better human connections and high stakes, low trust engagements. He is the author of The Instant, New York Times bestseller, Operation Pineapple Express, which is a third-person narrative de detailing the harrowing stories of the veterans, volunteers, and Afghan allies who navigated the U.S. abandonment of Afghanistan in August of 2021. And now the Gary Sinise uh, Foundation has also partnered with Scott to bring his play, Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret to the legendary theater Steppenwolf, as well as in stages across the country. And if you follow anything about what Scott's doing right now, you'll see many, many of his postings in the various states where uh, he's putting the show on, um, as well as stages across the country in an effort to provide healing to our veterans and families of the fallen and providing insight to our citizens on the personal cost of the longest war in our nation's history. Welcome again, Scott. Hey, thanks, Teresa. So first off, um, as I ask all of my guests uh, who are uh, associated with the military, uh, what inspired you to uh, make a career within the armed forces? Um, I grew up in a little logging town in Arkansas. We didn't even have a stoplight. Very, very small town and, and uh, met a, a Green Beret, active duty Green Beret named Mark when I was 14. He was there visiting family. And the minute I met this guy, I knew that's what I wanted to do and wanted to be. You know, I think for a lot of us, when we when we meet someone who who influences us or who inspires us, it's 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 oftentimes how they carry themselves and and who they are as individuals before we even know what they do. And that was certainly the case with me when I when I met Mark and, and when he explained to me what Green Berets were about and the kind of work they do by with and through indigenous populations and working, helping the little guy stand up against the big guy. For me, that's what resonated so much because as a runt, as a kid that had moved around a lot and was always on the outside looking in, 
that really landed with me. Wow. So that was something that was within you uh, to, to go for that and to do that kind of a job. Um, when you initially came into the armed services, uh, were you a Green Beret right away or did you, I, I'm not sure how, how the special forces work in the army. Is, was it something that you had to transition to after doing something previously? Yeah, it was something that like a lot of the, well, some, some of the elite forces you can go into right out of high school and there mm-hmm. is a, a pathway for that in special forces as well. Um, you know, what I would say is that first of all, is that Green Berets are different than every elite unit is unique in its own way, but Green Berets are different in that, you know, they are, they are, they work by, with, and through indigenous people. So they're, I kind of tell people that a modern day Green Beret is a, is a combination of John Wick, uh, Lawrence of Arabia and the Verizon guy, you know, I mean, they are relationship based connectors who happen to be lethal, but, but, uh, only when it's necessary. And what it implies is a level of rapport building skills and interpersonal skills that it takes a while to kind of develop that. So in the special forces community, typically you, you have to do an assignment in the regular army before you're eligible to try out mm-hmm. as an officer. That was certainly the case for me. I, I wasn't eligible to try out until I was a captain. So I had done three or four years in Panama waiting for that opportunity to do it. And in the process of that, I went to ranger school and air assault school and schools that would help me get ready. And I failed every single one of them uh, twice uh, in that journey. And just, I think part of being a, being a runt and, and, and trying to get through what were very difficult schools. And that probably taught me as much about life as anything was, was when you get recycled in a school and, and, and just the humiliation and, and morale kick that comes from that is, you know, how do you keep going? And, and that's kind of been my journey all the way up until Special Forces was, I think I did every course required for it twice. Hmm. I can totally relate. Um, I had I was held back in um, air crew school when I first initially joined the services because I couldn't do the swim strokes right. Then I got held back as in the helo dunker portion of the school because I couldn't figure out how to turn over upside down underwater blindfolded and get my way out. And so I was held back a, a week there. So. Um, I can definitely relate to that. And I think that's really part of what I think builds your character um, are, are those are those crucible moments where, um, you, you know, like the only way you're going to get through this is if you if you dig deep and dig hard or, or or everything that you set out to do to go to that school and to get that ranger tab or in my case, my air crew pin um, is, is null and void. And so you really want to do it. And that's one of the wonderful things I think that service teaches us is that persistence and that ability to keep going. Would you agree? A hundred percent. I mean, how bad do you want it? You know, how, how much of it is truly a dream and, and what length are you willing to go to? What, what a buddy of mine, Bo Eason, he says, every dream has a cost. You know, there's a transaction that must be paid for every dream. And I, you know, I have three boys now that are grown and I told them that their entire life growing up and they're seeing it now you know each of them is chasing their dreams and I, wow dad you're right man there's a there's a penance to be paid and there is i mean it, you know it's going to if you're going to play that bigger game um to do the stuff that scares you then there's going to be those moments where everything falls apart and and you really have to just dig in and, and figure out what you're going to do in that moment and and i know for me it was the pathway to being a green beret that really prepared me for life more than I ever thought it would. I think that's fascinating. And you said this in a previous podcast that I just listened to that you were on about how 
three times of year you you get this like tap or you you think about like there's these moments and, and sometimes you take them and, and do something about it and sometimes you don't and that's kind of what these th those moments remind me of is when something is kicking your ass so hard um do you dig in deeper and keep going or is that a sign even if you fail that there's some other path meant for you. So sometimes you don't know what, which path was, is the right path either, because some people who wash out of these schools um, end up in some other career that was better off for them anyway, you know? So yeah. it's just kind of fascinating how that, how that works out. It's really true. And, and it's a great, it's a great way to put it into perspective. And uh, in, in rooftop leadership, we do, we do consider a major component of that methodology to be the tap on the shoulder. And, you know, Winston Churchill coined that term when, when he talked about um, how each of us in our, in our life will be figuratively tapped on the shoulder and, and what a tragedy it would be if we found ourselves ill-prepared for that moment. And, and I, I, to me, that just resonates so well. And a buddy of mine who was an Olympic coach and Olympic athlete named Jeff, he took that a step further. And he said that, you know, he actually did research on this, that every single human in their life each year will, will, will receive what he coins a, a pivotal moment. There'll be a pivotal moment that happens where it's strategic. Like there is a, an inflection point in your journey that is, it is, it is strategic. And, and the question is, are you open enough to, to to hear it, to receive it, to respond to it? And as you said, it's difficult because oftentimes it presents itself as a butt kicking, you know, as, as something that you didn't want or you thought you didn't want. And can are you open enough to actually see it for for what it is? My wife, Monty, is phenomenal at taking moments like that and flipping them on their head and saying, OK, what is this really about? And um, I think all of us could aspire to do that more because on the other side of that are these strategic opportunities that, you know, are profound. Right. Truly, truly, truly. So as you're going along your journey in the army as a green beret, tell me a little bit about uh, what that experience was like and what you walked away from. Um, I know you did uh, tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you were involved in our longest war and tell me a little bit about what, that experience in that those those period of years sort of made you who you are today. I want to sort of get into how this got you on the journey of the rooftop leadership, then into the play, then into the advocacy. So, what was it sort of during those years that you think started putting you on that path? Yeah, I, you know, I appreciate that. I, I would say that special forces definitely shaped me in just about every every way imaginable. The the first. Mm, 10 years, eight years of my career in special forces was at Fort Bragg and seventh special forces group. And as an officer, I, I served as a detachment commander of a 12 person, a team as uh, a company commander there. I was a company commander twice. And, and then uh, also in various staff positions. And I loved, not only did I love being a green beret and loved being a special forces officer, I loved seventh group. You know, there are five, special forces groups in the world and each of them is and then there's two national guard groups but each of those groups is regionally apportioned it's regionally oriented and and i had already spent three years in panama as a lieutenant so i knew i wanted to be in seventh group because they were focused this was all pre 9 11 this was like 1990 
five or six, I'll date myself there. Um, but they were oriented on Central and South America. And at the time, you know, the drug war in the Andean Ridge was raging. It was just a few years after Pablo had been killed. And Seventh Group was very involved in counterinsurgency, counter narcotics work all throughout Latin America and, and had been really for, for decades. And if Colombia, for example, the longest running insurgency in the world uh, with the FARC, the Fuerzas Armadas, um, Revolucionarios de Colombia, they, they, they've been in an active insurgent for like 60 years. And so where I'm going with that was I had the opportunity as a young Green Beret to go downrange with these iconic special forces warrant officers and, and NCOs who had been in special forces, like in that group, in that battalion, in some cases on the same team for like 15 years, they had these deep relationships with the 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 fuerzas especiales in Colombia that where they they could walk into the Colombian Pentagon an E8 and mm -hmm. sit down with the with the head of the Colombian army because they had trained him as a lieutenant. Wow! And and so the depth of their relationships, their ability to influence things at a strategic level, because of relationships, because of social capital, mm -hmm. the foreign internal defense going in and, 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 you know, dealing with insurgency and lawlessness, but it was all relationship based. And to be a part of that, Teresa, to, to experience that and to see how one deployment at a time, the ball was moved just five yards down the field sure. and ended off to the next team. And there was such a reverence for the relationships with those partner nations that shaped me and carried me into post nine or into the nine 11, the second mm -hmm. half of my career when that horrific attack occurred and those five groups then became completely myopically focused on Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Afghanistan became my focus. But it was what I learned in those by, with and through situations down south that shaped everything I did inside Afghanistan. But did you feel as I've talked to uh, Amy Forsyth, she was a public affairs officer who deployed multiple times um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I don't think that she felt, and a lot of other veterans have told me uh, who've served there, did you think you could have the impact that you wanted to have there? Or were there political barriers that you didn't experience when you were working in South America? Uh, first of all, Amy's amazing. Uh, she is yeah, yeah. One of the coolest leaders I know. Like, I just have such a profound respect for her. Monty and I both do. Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I, I would say, first of all, I made a ton of mistakes in Afghanistan, like personally, like as a leader, as a Green Beret. You know, I went into Afghanistan on the heels of my Ranger buddy Cliff being killed in the Pentagon and on 9 11. Mm. And so that right out of the gate, you know, not only was I angry about what had happened on our watch, but it was fueled by the, the personal loss of a very, very dear friend of mine. I mean, we had named our firstborn kids Cody, like that's how close we were. And when Monty told me that he had been killed, I I wasn't able to deploy into Afghanistan until 04. But at that point, I'd lost Cliff and several other friends and I was seething for payback. And a lot of us were. And so we I believe as a special forces community kind of got away from our roots after the initial OEF one, where we were on horseback and doing the unconventional warfare. I believe we kind of devolved into a, a targeting element where we were walking down the enemy 
in the yes we had beards and but but we were very much direct action very kinetic and very focused on attriting the taliban leadership and and i was participatory in that i i have to say and i believe that we squandered not that the work wasn't heroic and necessary but at a strategic level mm -hmm. i believe we squandered an opportunity to work at at the community village level with the afghan rural afghan leaders to help them stand up on their own on the heels of a very successful oef one and it wasn't just it was all it was the whole coalition i believe we tried to replicate a counterinsurgency strategy from vietnam and just lay it right on top of afghanistan this top-down approach of, of of projecting security and governance and, and economic development in a way that was not in step with a status tribal society mm, and okay so, yep. and so in doing that we tried to project our square peg into a round hole and so amy's comment in that context absolutely i believe that we we were we were inhibited from really working at a local level and and working from the bottom up which i believe would have worked and we started doing that in 2010 with a program called village stability operations but it was too late I, th those first five eight years of the afghanistan war were the time for that and i have to say for my part in it i was not doing that i was focused on walking the enemy down on surgical targeting a lot of us were and so i have to look myself in the mirror and say okay you know there were certainly mistakes made above me but i made my share of them too right and and really i mean we we were all a group marching to the same beat of a strategic direction as a military so i i think that yes individually you can look at yourself and say well i made a mistake but at the same time you were part of a larger um machine uh, who had been ordered to perform the operation in that in that way but it's interesting you say that because you're basically saying that if we had gone in there with more of a tribal mindset of how their governance governance works um maybe we could have made more progress do you think we also could have made more progress if we had kept people in in country longer i've always wondered about the rotations right because relationships are so hard and so to have people come in on just rotational deployments and build relationships. How was that ever difficult to do? Because people are like, well, you're just gonna, you, your group's gonna leave and the new group's gonna come in. How, how were you able to maintain that continuity? It was hard and you know, there's a lot of different contributors to this thing that we can look back on and we should. Um, what, Rand wrote a book called Beyond the High Five. Uh, my friend Todd was an author on it, but it really talked about what you just talked about the, the six month and the one month rotations where you would come in there as a cohort you would do your time and then you would you would hand off and rotate out and often you know you had certainly in the special forces and the special operations room you had guys and girls with 13 14 deployments um but the problem was they were oftentimes in different locations so a special forces a team that was in maywand district on one deployment in the south is now working in the east on the next deployment so that in the, the special forces command had this thing called the, the the special forces playbook it was the most asinine thing i'd ever seen but it was designed to just get different teams in the rotations and but it had it, what it did not look at teresa was the continuity of engagement that 
was an advantage yeah. for us if we went back to the same district, if you sure. at least went back to the same region. And because if you're working, for example, if, if, if you are working in the South and you're in Kandahar and you are working with, you know, Poplazai tribes, that is radically different than working with the Gilzai tribes in the East. I mean, you might as well be in a different country, right? The, the, and we did not appreciate that and understand that at a special forces level. And we're supposed to. Like we're supposed to be the ones that understand that fundamentally and then and then I think set the tone for the rest of the military to follow on that. We did not do that, you know, and that's my point. And again, I'm not it's not in a finger pointing way like I was participating mm -hmm. in it. But if, if we're really going to look at what happened in this 20 year war and responsibly learn from it. Right. And that's kind of where I'm driving at. Yeah, then I think we have to step back and go, all right, for example, Afghanistan is largely a status society. And by that, I mean, it is honor based. It's based on honor and shame. It is built around the group dynamic where it is it is essentially primal and tribal. The second you go off any paved road in that country, it is not the central government top down. It is the local jerga or shura bottom up that determines not just security, but economic development and even dispute resolution and governance. We did not get deep on that and understand that with true fidelity as a special forces community until 2010. Mm -hmm. and, and so if that's the case, then the rest of the coalition never did. And, right. and so we pursued a policy and a strategy that was largely based on vengeance, payback and retribution in the beginning. And we never got clear on, at a high level on what we were there to do. Um, I think if we had just stayed focused on keeping terrorism at bay and not letting that country become a safe haven uh, again, that there is a way we could have done long term foreign internal defense in that country, similar to what we've done in Colombia for 100 years uh, usefully. And it would have taken 100 years to move that country in a direction to where it could stand on its own. That's fascinating. I never heard it explained like that. You have such a way of kind of simplifying uh, a very complex concept down to the essential parts that uh, I think anybody, even who doesn't, who hasn't been to Afghanistan or who may not understand the historical context um, can understand. And I think this is such an important conversation because um, if we don't learn from what happened in Afghanistan or we don't learn from what happened in Iraq, and let's transition to Iraq. I asked Amy the same question. I said, why do we see Iraq and Afghanistan so differently? Is it just because of that public withdrawal? Why is it that we're not, we always talk about our allies in Afghanistan, but, but during that same period, we were having this war in Iraq. And so why is Iraq seen so differently? And, and why isn't it the, the, the issue that we are seeing with Afghanistan? I, I think there was, for starters, at, at, a, at a high level, I think there was generally more agreement within the nation and within the military and within, frankly, the diplomacy and development sectors that Afghanistan was necessary, right? I mean, we had just suffered a horrendous attack at the hands of a terror group that was planning, projecting, and launching out of Afghanistan. So in that sense, it was very hard to find. I mean, and look at the look at the, the level of NATO countries and other countries that joined that effort right. right out of the gate. So, I mean, it was almost a no-brainer that we needed to go do that. It was after that we, it was after we pushed the Al-Qaeda and Taliban out that we actually started, we that we that we that we snatched uh, defeat from the jaws of victory, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and and but if you look at Iraq, two thousand three, 
right out of the gate, there was a lot of folks in the military that were saying, what are we doing? Like, we, we need all of these assets in Afghanistan right now. You had special forces teams flying daylight missions in Afghanistan because there were no special operations rotary wing aircraft because they were all in Iraq. And, and, and that's just a microcosm mm -hmm. of the, I think, internal division that was there. And then, of course, the country was split on Iraq. The, the justification for going to war there did not bear up like it probably should have. And so there was a lot of split ideology on whether it was even a, a worthwhile endeavor. But then right. we were in it. We were in it. And then you started to see a very profound insurgency with Al Qaeda in Iraq that ultimately became ISIS and a, a you know a really heavy cost in terms of blood and treasure that was kind of eclipsing Afghanistan. So there was always this just dichotomy between those two campaigns, both internal and external to to the world population and the military. And I think that kind of division is what led to this context. But to your point, you know, if you stop and think about it, we abandoned the Iraqi military and the police. Uh, and allowed ISIS to spring up. And then we have screwed the Kurds over so many ways under Obama, under Trump. Uh, it's it's unfathomable how we have treated them and we have just thrown them to the wolves. So the one thing that I kind of look at in both of these campaigns is how we treated our partners. Both of those campaigns, Iraq and Afghanistan, were inherently contingent on our ability to work by, with, and through partner nations to stand up on their own. And in both cases, we systematically abandoned those partners and left them to the wolves. And that is, to me, the part that is incorrigible and we have to stop it. Right. I agree. And I think that's why your message, your play, uh, your book, just all over your, your advocacy is so important because I think that Americans need to get energized about civic duty and about being a part of their community. And it doesn't necessarily mean we want a ton of people to join the war. It means that we want people to be involved in their politics on a local level, or we want them to be involved in their elections. And it's why I'm so outspoken as an active duty member about us having an opinion and being influential. I do not agree with this mentality that has persisted. And apparently it's very historic as I've been learning um, about military not being able to speak truth to power. I think the whole reason we get better and we improve as a military is so that we share our stories like you're sharing yours and we can rise up and 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 move the needle forward. So I, I think my next question will kind of go into that is that you've probably seen the same thing where there's not that many people like myself, active duty, who have a podcast, who are speaking the truth about their stories online and, and what would you say to somebody who's afraid to do that? You know, I, I watch what you do um, with a lot of admiration. And, and I, I, you know, I really believe in what you're doing. I, I left the Army um, in 2013. I retired. I was selected for battalion command three times. And I turned them down all three times, the third time with prejudice, because I just could not uh, you know, fast forward to that community engagement program that we were talking about, village stability operations. We started it in 2010. We abandoned them in 2012. And most of them that I helped recruit, the elders were killed. 
And, you know, it was a foreshadowing of what was to come in um, the 2021 event. And, and it really led to the development of, of my play, of my book, Game Changers, and ultimately my decision to leave. And I was very outspoken about what we were doing in Afghanistan uh, within the SOCOM community and, um, and what we had done to guys like Jim Gant, running him out of town and taking his beret away. And I just, uh, so I, I believe that, you know, as leaders in the military, we have an inherent obligation to speak truth to power uh, in the context of our service and in the context of the oath that we've taken and, and what we are pursuing. You know, it has to be responsibly balanced, obviously, with operational security and, and with, yes, and with you know, the, good, the good order and discipline of an organization. But I, I fear, Teresa, that we have moved so far into groupthink. And I look at, for example, and, and I'll only speak to like the, the, the special operations community on this. But, you know, when I was coming up post 9-11 in the, the war on terror, you know, it was pretty much understood that the general officers and their senior enlisted advisors had a had a camp around them. And if you wanted to advance, if you wanted to uh, succeed in your aspirational goals as a Green Beret or whatever special operator, you'd better be in one of those camps and you had better demonstrate the kind of loyalty that was requisite to 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 serving that officer and that leader. And if you spoke out against that, if you demonstrated any level of disloyalty, that you were gone and you weren't just gone from that circle of trust, you were gone from the military. And 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 so there was there and what that led to, I believe, is where we are now where there it's just to me, this is just my opinion, the whole thing's just rotten to the core. It, it's rotten at its core in the sense that there is such a zero defect mentality there is such a, a low morale in the junior officer and NCO ranks and such a disparity between the leaders and the lead. Now, it's not a blanket statement, but it's pretty prolific. And if you don't believe me, look at the recruiting numbers, look at the retention numbers, look at the surveys, that are, the command climate surveys that are coming out. Like there's a problem. And I believe that at the core of it is that we're not listening to our people. You know, our people don't mm -hmm. feel heard. They don't feel seen. And Afghanistan was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the ultimate collective representation of leaders preserving their careers at the most senior level while their NCOs and junior officers worked in the day rooms, took leave, took passes, worked out of their living rooms to recover the allies that those senior officers had told us we had better take care of for 20 years. And 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 so I know that's a long answer, but, I, you know, it's bad. And I think that we we've got to get back to a point where there, we close this gap between the leaders and the lead. And that means listening to to leaders like yourself who have something to say. And I think that there's more than just me out there that are wanting to share their story and wanting to speak up. But because we have such very poor policy when it comes to political activities, when it comes to personal use of social media. There are, there are ambiguities in place right now that keep people, I feel, silent because they don't know what line they can go over or cross. And there's a running joke even among us content creators who are active duty about 
all depends on who your boss is. Uh, if you've got it, you know, you've got good leadership, then, then they love what you're doing. But I mean, I, I was at a command just previously where my first line supervisor said, oh, you're going to start a podcast. Only people like Jocko do podcasts, just very judgmental, very dismissive, um, very unsupportive of, of the show or anything that I was doing publicly online. And even had a 06, uh, who was one of my senior raiders at my last job, basically tell me that if I want to make captain, I better stop doing what I do on social media. So yeah. I can see why uh, active duty feel that the way they do. But what I hope to be um, is somebody who shows that, yes, you can. Yes, you can still promote if you want. It is harder, I would say, because like Andy Milburn, he just happened to have people. He's the colonel of uh, special yeah. operations that I just had on. He had, uh, and this is what you need when you're somebody like us. You have to have enough people in your court or in your corner who do believe in what you're doing and do understand that you're doing this for the greater good and not uh, to just, you know, piss people off or be disrespectful or just, you know, make a stink. Uh, so I, I think that it's so important that we teach the active duty how to do this, how to do it respectfully, how to do it lawfully, because there is a way to do it lawfully, um, or, or we're never going to get the change. And the change, I believe, Scott, it's going to come from the veterans like yourself, but it's also, and I feel so strongly about this, it's got to come from the people on the inside. It's got to come from people who are serving presently, who, and I get emotional about this, but who are seeing the things that are wrong and they speak up and they say something. I, would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I, I think there's two ways to think about this. There's folks like me on the outside who I made a decision that I could do more on the outside than on the inside for the very reasons that you are talking about. Like, you know, I was in a place where I wanted to be heard and so I had to make a personal decision, like I'm going to go to the outside. But I think it's interesting to just stay on that piece before I get to the inside piece that that your that your former boss said, you know, only people like Jocko do that. Well, let's unpack that for a second. I don't know Jocko personally, but I look at what that guy has done. You know, he wrote a book called Extreme Ownership, right, that talks about taking personal responsibility for what you've done. Um, he has told the stories of his brothers in the SEAL teams and their heroism and their courage and then parlayed that into how that can work in your life. He writes kids books. I mean, has he made money doing it? Yeah, but last time I checked, that's okay in America to make mm -hmm. money. Um, but this guy is, to me, is a storyteller. He's someone yes. that we should look to in our community to go, Cool, man. That guy, that guy did it right. Like we should do more of that in civil right. society. We need guys like Jocko leading us at home. I'm totally cool with that. But rather what yeah. we do in our own community is we look at guys, we eat our own. We, right. we, say, we say, oh, you can only be like those people. And yeah. if you're not, if you're not huge and, 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 and prolific already and famous, um, in, in his mind, because he was a huge Jocko fan. It was funny because okay, he, he, he and the supervisor had a had a love-hate relationship. And one of the things we would talk about constantly is podcasting. And when I started mine, he was just, he was very dismissive of it. Like, oh, it's yeah. okay to listen to other people's podcasts right. and, and be a fan. But no, no, you, Teresa, you need to go stay in your box and, and be in your corner. And, and you, no, 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 you don't, we, we, you don't do things like that. Well, you know, we, yeah. To that point, I would say I, I was understanding that he was like anti jock No, 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 because, no. Because we see that a lot, too. In the special forces community, we see guys that get out there in the public space and uh, we, we cut them down 
because they've succeeded in the public space, you know, and I think that's that's something we've got to stop doing as a military community. Um, as far as like inside fixing problems from the inside, you know, it, that's the only way it's going to happen. I, I don't know if it can. I mean, honestly, I look at what's happened with Afghanistan. There hasn't been that I've been able to see. And if someone can correct me, please do. I haven't seen any meaningful effort, for example, in the special forces or army special operations community to do an after action review on what happened in the final months of Afghanistan to examine not only what went wrong, how has it impacted our by, with, and through capability in other countries, and what can we learn differently so that when we have, what what about if, if, if another attack happens on the homeland and, you know, CENTCOM themselves have said that AQ and ISIS are within six months of that, what if another attack happens on the homeland? We saddle our everybody up and we, we get on those C-17s. We go back into Afghanistan because that's how short-sighted we are. Except this time it's going to be my kid and our other kids going over there, not me. And they're going to walk not into a, a, a Northern Alliance reception party like it was the first time, ready to get to work and get after the Taliban, but a pissed off commando in tattered rags and an M4 carbine that he was given a long time ago. And in, in the time that's transpired, he's lost his wife, he's lost his kids, he's been tortured. And now our young Green Berets are going to go in there and try to work with this guy because the nation wants retribution. Like, has anyone done any kind of after action review at a responsible level that allows us to ascertain what we're going to be walking into? To me, that's what special operators should be doing. We're not. I haven't seen any evidence of that at all. And so if that's not happening, then we're literally turning the protect the page. We're pretending it never happened. And we're going to send our young operators into a hornet's nest, you know, and that's just one example. Mm -hmm. and, and that's mm -hmm. where I, I really struggle to understand what at an institutional leader at the most senior level, what's what the hell's happening? Because that to me is enough to retire over like that right there is a violation of the special operations imperatives of our special operations truths and of our supposed reverence for by, with, and through an indigenous populations. Not only have we violated it and systemically abandoned them for like decades, we've now put our own regiment and our community at risk for the next one. And there's been no hot wash. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a, I understand where you're coming from, Scott. And it's something that is, is, is tough for me to, to sit on as I move forward because I think that we all who are presently serving, we saw what happened in Afghanistan and everybody was just, I mean, it was, it was definitely like this collective, like, like you say, moral injury that everyone felt. And even as we hear, um, and we've, we've talked about this before on your posts about how even when the White House stands up and, and explains what happened, they, they do everything in the, in the, in the, in the vein of, well, we got all these other people out. We, we got, a, you know, that, that's what that's that's all they'll do is they'll double down and 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 to own it it's just i guess it's just not politically correct to to say we made mistakes or or we did this and so nobody nobody's doing that because that's not you're not allowed to do that apparently you're not allowed even though that goes against everything that you learn as a leader is, is you own, own your mistakes you know you you humble yourself all right. those things if, if if I, I truly do feel, Scott, that if if some of our leaders would have just done that um, 
and had those real honest, raw conversations about, hey, we we fucked up yeah. and this is how we're going to make it better going forward. So true. So good. Right. Yeah, it's so true. And and what you're saying is gold right now. And, you know, there's that's not just you and I saying this, this like this is what mental health professionals who do a lot of work around moral injury and, you know, which is an, a violation of what one knows to be right. Um, and and whether you participated in it or whether you had to bear witness to it, they both have a profound effect on on mental health. They exacerbate PTS. They exacerbate survivor's guilt, depression. And and they are, I believe, right now at the root cause of a tsunami of veteran mental health where 80,000 plus calls went into the VA hotline in March alone, the most on record, more than any point in COVID, mm. more than any point uh, during uh, the Afghanistan collapse. Like this thing is growing. And yet there's absolute silence, deafening silence from the senior leadership, not just at the political level, but in the military. And we were trained as officers, as leaders at very junior levels that when you make a mistake, you own it. You own that mistake and you learn from it. I mean, that is the very definition of an AAR. An after action review yeah. is to look at what happened, look at what went right, look at what went wrong and do it differently the next time. Like it, and, the, and the rules that we were taught in tactical AARs or hot washes, I think you guys call them in the Air Force, but was or debriefs. But is that there's no you set your feelings aside, you own it, you mm -hmm. own the problem so that you can rapidly learn and crystallize the learning and move on and do it better next time. But what we and then we teach our kids the same thing we teach our kids in kindergarten if you make a mistake you own it you apologize you atone you move forward together we have taken all of that shit that we learned at the most junior level and our senior leaders have dismissed all of it and these iconic ncos and officers junior officers mid-grade officers who lived their lives that way Mm -hmm. They lived their lives that way. They sacrificed their youth for a 20 year war are watching this happen. And, and, and these are guys with 10, 12, 14 deployments, women too. And they're, and they're, they're going, what just happened? What, what was the point? What did it, what was all this for? Did it even matter? And, and the very people we put our trust in who, who we, who we, fought for and who we believed in were the ones who are now silent. And I'm not just talking about the active duty ones. I'm talking about the retired flags and the retired senior enlisted advisors. To me, they should be in the public space, not necessarily pointing fingers, but just talking about this moral injury, taking whatever level of responsibility is appropriate so that we can help these men and women move forward. Really just doing what you're doing, Scott. I mean, honestly, if they were to just come out and do what you do, which is you talk about your experience, you talk about what it was like over there, and you talk about what you could have done differently, then you talk about institutionally what you saw would have helped you. I would love those kinds of conversations, and I welcome them on my podcast because I think that until we have those conversations and we share those stories, we're, we're not going to move forward and the american people are not really being given the information that they need as taxpayers to to support the elected officials that will carry the water for the for the for the things that really make sense uh for our nation and that's why it really does go back to what we discussed before about a return to civics and and being and being engaged 
Um, Because if we're not engaged about the decisions that are being made, um, then these decisions, I I, I believe we're just going to, like you said, we put the the Vietnam War blueprint on Afghanistan. Well, we're just going to create another Afghanistan should, um, let's say, Russia attack a NATO nation. I mean, who who knows? Who who knows if that's going to be the same formula for us to go into another conflict? And with what we've got going on right now with Ukraine, I mean, I'm at NATO right now. It is all real to us that there could be another conflict uh, within our lifetimes. And so what are we going to do uh, as a nation uh, to move forward? This is such a huge and complex problem. So I'm going to backtrack and say, what can just average citizens, you know, most of my most of my audience are military, they're associated with the military. Um, what are some of the first steps that people can do to get their arms around this issue? I mean, I wrestle with that too, you know, because it is such a gargantuan thing. But I, I, I would just say, for starters, I think we, we have to articulate, we have to lead up. Mm-hmm. Because as I look around, nobody else is coming. No, nobody else is coming. I don't see uh, anything coming down the hill on the white horse from Washington, D.C., from the Pentagon, from the State Department, from either side of the political aisle that tells me that the systemic problems that we're talking about here are going to be addressed. And when you look at the, and again, I am not, uh, I'm actually an optimist. I'm not trying to come across as, you know, doom and gloom. However, I'm also a career Green Beret who looks at civil society and who looks at indicators and warning signs of when the dashboard is blinking, right? That's, That's what I've done for years in other places. And I'm telling you, the dashboard is blinking in this country uh, in terms of the levels of distrust that we have in America, where two thirds of Americans don't trust their neighbor. Um, The proliferation of social media, I believe, is running us off a cliff where we are treating each other with shadow tribalism. And you see that Mm -hmm. kind of divisionist behavior in social media. You see it in the 24 hour news cycle. I see it all the time when I go on the news and I look at the level of professional division that's being fomented, certainly by our politicians. And so I, I think it starts with us as citizens. We have to look at ourselves and go, all right, as I look at my family, am I leading myself? Am I leading my family? Am I leading my community? And then from there, am I leading out? And, you know, if you're wondering, well, what could I ever do about it? You know, if you want to see an example of that, there's two books out there by Robert Putnam. Uh, one is called uh, Bowling Alone. And the Mm -hmm. other is called uh, The Upswing. And in both of those, the sociologist, award-winning sociologist Robert Putnam talks about a time in the early 1900s when America was at a very, very dark place. Um, She was divided. There was um, a real disparity between the haves and the have-nots. Infrastructure was falling apart. There was mass migration from the agricultural areas in the cities. The cities were were sweltering with crime. There was unchecked immigration and just all a whole range of civil society problems. And the pundits were all saying that America was on our last leg. This was it. We weren't going to make it. And then between 19, really 1890 and 1910, 1915, some very, very interesting thing happened. One of them was uh, an alcoholic named uh, Dr. Bob and another alcoholic named Bill W. 
um, in Ohio decided to have uh, a meeting because they couldn't get sober. Nobody else was coming. So they said, let's have a meeting. And that meeting ultimately transformed into Alcoholics Anonymous that, that has saved millions of addicts and alcoholics, including myself, uh, and given them a pathway into recovery. At the same time, the Rotary Club, the Junior League, the Future Farmers of America, NAACP, pretty much every community-based organization that you and I grew up with as kids started during that window of time. It was the largest, it was the largest period of reform and community-based bottom-up leadership that we've ever seen on record. Hmm. And, it, and it ran that that social capital, that bridging social capital ran all the way until 1972. And that's what Putnam calls the upswing. And then in 1972, for a range of reasons, everything from Vietnam to mass technology and other things, it started to dip and it has continued to be on a downswing until now. And the downswing, according to Putnam and other social scientists, is at an all time low. And we're, what we're seeing around us, if you in, in fact, when Putnam writes the upswing, his first chapter, he describes what's going on. And you think I'm sorry, I'm tipping the hand here. You think he's talking about now, but he wasn't. He's talking about 1905. Mm, interesting. And so what Putnam's point is, is that we are at that inflection point where we are due another upswing. We are due that kind of bottom-up community-based leadership that will force the institutional mechanisms to follow suit as it did in that period of time. There is macro-level precedent for it, I believe, personally. That what happened in the collapse of Afghanistan and that you saw in these veterans based organizations like Sacred Promise, Moral Compass, Dunkirk, Pineapple was the first shot across the bow in a bottom up community based volunteer effort to deal with a social problem. If you look around, mm. there's other things like that happening. So this goes back to your point about do we take the microphone? Yes, I believe we have to take the microphone. The difference between now and that period of time in the early 1900s that that ushered in this profound social reform is that we have access to platforms like right, yours like this one yeah. on an unprecedented scale where our voices can actually be heard you know last out that play that we're doing right now that is being featured by Gary Sinise that started with me just moving the pen uh sitting beside my wife writing a play at at 48 years old i didn't even start acting until i was 50 you know, we put 28,000 miles on a U-Haul van um, to, to go around the country to 16 cities, right? That's how that started. Operation Pineapple Express, it started with two guys on a cell phone communicating on signal saying, who else do we know and what else can we do, you know, and, 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 and sending emails to Fox News saying, you guys got it wrong. <laughs> CNN, you need to bring somebody on that can talk about it. Like the point mm -hmm. is, we have access to platforms now that can usher in and mobilize this kind of change. And I believe it's possible. I do. That's, that's where it starts. I think people need to look around their arena and I, and I hate long answers to questions. I'm sorry I've done it, but um, you know, people need to look around their arena and see what's laying on the ground. That's stinking like cheese and say, all right, nobody's coming. What do I need to do to pick it up? I agree. I absolutely 100% agree. I have a, 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 you know, I actually coined your term in my, in my office uh, with my team about the nobody is coming because uh, we've, we've had a lot of reduced manning lately and I, I've tried many, many avenues to get more people. And I just find, and I, I joked with one of my coworkers, I said, nobody's coming. We're, we're just going to figure out how to make it work. 
And, and you know what, if we got to reduce our level of services or say, hey, we'll do that, but not at the level that you're asking for. But what we can do is that's just what we're going to do. And, and I think that you really have to take on that mentality uh, when you're when you're pushing for change and for growth in a community. So I've I've just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I know we're getting at the top of the hour, but I want to make sure that we get out everything that that I wanted I wanted for so many months um, to talk with you about. And I think I do want to transition back to Pineapple Express and, and just ask you what how did you even start that? I, I'm just curious. I'm always curious about the sparks of change. So mm -hmm. what what were the first indicators? Was it you seeing something on the news? Was it the text from your your friend who was the translator who's saying, I can't get out, I can't get out? Because I, I did read your book and I love the way it's written. It's written from that perspective of that, from, from that issue with your friend and then kind of goes out further into the larger issue of of that incident. And so I always love to know the beginning of, of change. And so what, what happened to, to, to enable that uh, rescue to take place? I think like everything else, it, 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 it happened in my life that ended up being strategic. It started around failure. It started around struggle. It started around um, a tap on the shoulder where my dear friend Nazam, a commando, a, a U.S. trained special forces NCO, uh, weapons sergeant, was uh, being hunted and frankly didn't have many more hours left on the earth and i had tried to not get involved again because of the reasons we talked about when i got out of the army and i was working his visa on the edges but kind of one foot in one foot out and and it was when Kabul finally collapsed and he he was talking to me and he said you know i um uh, i i don't mind dying i just don't want to die alone and that just hit me so hard and it, and it just made me realize that this was a kid that had been shot through the face defending u.s green berets and here he was you know going to be executed hung from a lamppost somewhere in Kabul because he had stood up for us and i just couldn't live with that i couldn't live with that and and um that was that's what prompted me to reach out to a couple of buddies some active duty some uh not but we all shared a love of nizam and we started just working a plan like so many others did it this wasn't just me there was nothing unique yeah. about what I chat group. you guys did it through cell phones and chat groups absolutely and, and, and relationships and human connection and that's why mm -hmm. you know like my whole thing with rooftop leadership about human connection the the message that i try to tell people is that what at least what we did with pineapple and what all these other groups did was they leveraged trust and relationships that had been built when risk was low and then they 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 called in those cards when risk was high and that's the way humans work when we build relationships and social capital when risk is low then we can leverage it when risk is high and that's what we did and we were able to get some out not enough and then we were able to parlay that into um you know i think what pineapple maybe did differently than some other groups was we told the story you know mm -hmm. that's when i recognized that okay i'm a storyteller I'm going to tell the story from the stage in a play. I'm going to tell the story on CNN, Fox News. I'm going to write a book and I'm going to get as loud as I need to get, because at the end of the day, this is wrong. And, and this is something that we not only is it wrong, but we can learn from it. If you read the last words of my book in Pineapple, it's about, all right, what's your Pineapple Express? You know, right. that was ours. What's yours? And it goes back to this thing we talked about that Putnam described in the early 1900s is that it, this is a time for citizen leadership and 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 we have everything we need at our disposal to lead 
And the others, the mouth breathers will follow suit if we do that. They will. And I agree with you. You need the, the, the people like yourself who are the sparks and who lead the change, like Andy Milburn, like Brett Crozer, who I just had on, Captain Crozer. You need those people who, who can push change and, and who understand um, and have understand what it takes to push change and have the confidence and the determination to do so. But then others will follow suit once you, you do that. And thank you so much. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you within this hour that you want to put out to, to the audience? I think I would just say if anybody's interested in the kind of stuff we're doing from the play to root, just go to scottman.com. Um, it's got everything there my TED Talks, my podcast. We talk a lot about this on my podcast, this operationalizing the upswing that you and I hit and how to do that at your own level. And then I would encourage people to also, if you can, come see the play Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret while it's touring. It ends in October. If you go to lastoutplay.com, you can find the tour dates. It's a really powerful show, whether you served in the military or not. If you can't do that, you can watch it on Amazon Prime. It's there right now uh, in spite of the writers and actors strike. Uh, last outs there and you can watch it on Amazon and all the proceeds go to our nonprofit, the hero's journey. So, uh, and the last thing is again, if you see something around you that you know is broken and it needs to be fixed is to just say to yourself, nobody's coming and, and step into the arena and start leading. And, and people are starving for individuals who do that. We are looking for leaders who do that. If you don't, if you don't have a title, don't worry about it. Just get in there and do what you know to be right and tell the story and people will come alongside. I love it, Scott. All right. I'm going to say goodbye to you backstage real quick, but thank you so much for taking your time uh, to come on the show today and share your story, share what people can do. It's so inspiring. It's a, it's a message, like you said, that needs to be heard. So thank you very much. I very much appreciate it. Um, have a good, have a great day. Thanks, Teresa. Keep doing what you're doing too. Thank you. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Uh, thank you all for joining me. I don't think we'll have a show next week, um, but I will be on a couple weeks later. So just please uh, stay in touch. Uh, please be sure to uh, subscribe uh, if you're following me from YouTube uh, or on any of my other platforms. And thank you all for your support. Have a, have a great rest of your weekend. Bye-bye now. Hey, Scott.